You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Amen. Hopefully you enjoyed that time of worship. What a song to think about. What we have to look forward to in eternity, seeing his face, being in a land of perfection. Um, I think in the world that we live in with so much, I think, hurt, things going on, and just sadness, that uh, something to look forward to. And hopefully uh, you have that to look forward to this morning. I encourage you, uh, when times are difficult, to think upon that. If you would, take your Bible and turn to Judges chapter 6 this morning. Judges chapter 6. We're going to continue in our series talking about uh, God and his grace with this uh, nation, grace for every single nation. Uh, if you would, be in prayer for uh, Pastor Harley as he is in Rocky Mount, North Carolina uh, this weekend, having a wellness weekend down there with some folks, be in prayer um, for them. Uh, they had, I believe, services both yesterday and today, so be in prayer for him as he travels as well. Uh, of course, be in prayer for those that are over in uh, Senegal right now. I think uh, Sadie, um, Nick Hinkle, uh, my wife, of course, also. I'll be in prayer for them. I think yesterday they had their uh, fun day. They did get over there, got all their bags, so that's a huge answer to prayer to begin with. Um, but I think yesterday they were really suffering for the Lord. I think they were riding camels and ATVs in the sand dunes. Uh, so no, but their day begins, their, their work begins today. They're setting up the clinic. I think they're five hours ahead of us. And so um, they probably already set up their clinic at church this morning, of course. And they begin uh, their clinic today. And just an exciting time to, for them to, number one, meet physical needs. Um, but for every single person that comes into the clinic, they get to hear the gospel. Uh, they'll get their, their, their diagnosis, their prescriptions, and as they go to the pharmacy to wait for those, every single one of them is presented with a gospel. And so an awesome opportunity to be in prayer for them uh, while they're serving this week, and then they'll be back towards the end of this week. Uh, be in prayer for uh, myself. I am a single parent this week. Um, maybe, maybe pray more for my kids than me, I suppose. Um, but the good news is I still have all three of them. Um, just kidding. I know I have four kids. I've kept track of them so far. <laughs> Um, uh, we've had a, a great time together just keeping them, I think, busy, um, lots of junk food and late nights. Um, I've told a couple folks already, I think we had dinner the past two nights at like 8.30, but they really appreciate it once we begin to eat dinner, you know, they really understand how hungry um, they are, and so um, it's been a blessing just to, to spend time with them, and of course to get to preach with you uh, this, this morning, uh, be in prayer for um, some of the Schlegels, our brother Nate is under the weather, and so he was gracious enough to open up this morning. Um, but is at home with some of his sick family, so please be in prayer for them as well. Judges chapter number six here. Still going to talk about grace here and God's grace and this time of we see multiple judges. Look with me in Judges chapter six at verse number one. Judges chapter six, verse number one begins this way. It says, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel, and because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens which were in the mountains and caves and strongholds. And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up, and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them. And they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till thou come unto Gaza, and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor ass." Verse 5 says, For they came up 
with their cattle and their tents, and they came as grasshoppers for multitude. For both they and their camels were without number, and they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you, and drave them out from before you and gave you their land. Verse 10 says, And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell, but ye have not obeyed my voice. This morning, as we continue this series, Grace for Every Generation, I want to talk about this morning, Grace for the Hesitant Generation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day, Lord. God, I thank you for your goodness and your love. And God, I thank you so much for all that you've done for us. God, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together this morning around your word and to look at how you worked in the lives of many, perhaps, Lord, that were hesitant. And Lord, we know your word promises that all is profitable for for doctrine, for correction, for reproof. Lord, you promised that not a single word will return void. And so, Lord, this morning I pray that you would take your word as we've read, as we look this morning, as we look at the life of Gideon, as we look at the life of the Israelites, and that you would help us to, Lord, apply, apply these principles from, to our life so that we might glorify you. I pray the Lord, if there's anyone here in this room this morning that has never accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, has never made that decision to put their trust in him alone for salvation, God, that you would help them to understand their need, give them the boldness and courage to confess that before you today. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. How many people in this room enjoy swimming? Raise your hands, just by a raise of hands. Many people in here are aquatic people, all right? You like the swimming? Absolutely. I want to share something with you for a moment that my family knows, the teenagers know, and my wife makes fun of me for. I hate swimming. All right, you know, like, they, they always laugh at me like, you know, the teens know that I don't like the beach because sand it just gets everywhere. It's not fun at all. But I'm not a big fan of swimming, and here's why, all right? Swimming is a lot of work, all right? Now, especially if you have kids, but just for yourself, it's a lot of work. I mean, you've got to change into swimming clothes, right? Work. You've got to get into cold water. That's work. Then you swim around and wear yourself out. More work. Then you have to get out of those sticky, wet clothes, extra work, put dry clothes on, more work, and that's not even counting if you have to shower before or after. Even more work. And so there is a lot of work involved for something that is supposed to be fun. And so for that reason, I'm not a big fan of swimming. But I remember when I was younger, when I was a kid, I, I did enjoy swimming. We lived uh, up, the up the road from uh, a large lake, Chippewa Lake, and uh, during the summertime, we would go down the road, and there was the large lake there, and we would go swimming. And out in the lake, there would be a dock. And I remember once I was able to finally figure out how to swim, people would go out to the dock, and they would jump off, and they would dive into the water. You, anybody in here good at diving? A couple of you, maybe. Maybe some of you that swam. And you know, you're, like, you're watching the Olympics, for instance, when they dive. They all look finesseful, and that itty-bitty splash. And I'm more like a cannonball person. But I remember watching people dive, and thinking it was so cool. Like, I want to be able to dive, you know? But, you know, you don't just start off jumping in and diving and looking good. The, uh, the way I learned or was taught, I should say, shouldn't say learned. The way I was taught was you kind of get to the edge of the dock, right? You kind of come down here a little bit, 
and I'm making some work for the camera guys this morning. So you kind of get down to the edge of the dock here, and I remember they taught you, you would kind of put your hands together, and then you would just slowly lean forward, and then you'd dive. And they're like, oh, you know, it sounds so easy, right? But usually instead of this finesseful dive, I would begin to lean forward, and then I would sprawl like a crazy monkey and just splash like, a, I think, a belly flop pretty much. And so I remember I'd start to fall, and then I would hesitate. You know, and every single time I'd try again and again and again, and it never went very well for me because every time I would kind of pull back at the last second, and I knew that I was never bound to be an Olympic diver. Um, <laughs> But I enjoyed swimming. You know, I thought about the idea of hesitation. You know, hesitation in the world that we live in affects a lot of things. It can change a lot of things, right? Hesitation can cause you to miss out on great things in life. Now, I thought about as, uh, as they posted some of the pictures about them riding camels and ATVs in the desert and stuff, the, the jump they took without hesitation to, to go and serve in a third world country to share the gospel experiences they're having because they were, just went all in on it. And, I thought, and about the world that we live in, have you ever watched somebody else do something and you thought, man, I wish I would have done that. I wish I would have just kind of jumped in and, and, and went all in, and, but I didn't, so I missed out. You ever had maybe an opportunity that, that God gave you, and because you hesitated, you missed out on something God had for you? Here in this chapter, we see this in both the life of Gideon, who we'll talk about, and the Israelites as well. And so the great news is, is all of us, if we're honest, sometimes are hesitant to do things, whether it's something new, something outside of our comfort zone, something that we just don't know how it's going to end up, and we hesitate. And as we've seen through the book of Judges already, even when we're hesitant, God shows great grace. And so we see this hesitant generation here as we begin to read chapter 1. And number 1, if you're following along in your bulletins, I encourage you to take notes there. We see number 1, we see this hesitant generation have hesitant repentance. Hesitant repentance. It was interesting, as I began reading this book of Judges here, chapter 6, in verse 1 it says this, look at it, it says, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, we're becoming, as we've been reading this book, painfully familiar with the cycle that takes place of the Israelites, right? They love and serve God. They kind of get distracted by other gods. And so they begin to go into uh, be oppressed by different, different uh, countries and different parties here. And we once again see this cycle take place as God's people fail to remember in their heart who he is and what he's done. They know about God. They know of God. They have a head knowledge of him because he's been with them so much but they begin to forget in their heart and they begin to worship idols once again. Which when it says they did evil, that's what it's talking about. They turn to these different idols. That's what it means to do evil here. And this time as we read this chapter, this book of Judges, this cycle will cover three chapters of the life of the Israelites. And since the essential stages of the cycle are familiar to us, we kind of know how it goes in these lives. The narrative encourages us here to look at, I think, particular details and any differences between other cycles that are taking place. Now, it says here that they did evil in the sight of the Lord, and it says this time, God delivered them into the hands of the Midianites. Say that with me, the Midianites. This is the worst oppression yet that the Israelites have faced. See, 
Israelites are forced, it says, to leave their homes, and it says to make shelters for themselves in these mountain ranges. And so this oppression was so bad that they began to leave and make homes elsewhere. What's interesting is, is these Midianites, they weren't interested in political control and just having slaves. They weren't interested in that, but rather exploiting their economic situation, what they had to offer, plundering the land of its crops here. And so in verse 4 it says, they left no sustenance for Israel. The people were starving and the land was ravaged. There was nothing left for these Israelites because the Midianites had just taken everything that they had grown and on the animals they had raised for themselves. And so this is the situation we see here in this passage. And eventually, in verse 6, it says, Midian was so, had impoverished them so much that they cry out to the Lord. And this is a familiar cycle, right? It gets so bad that they finally cry out to the Lord. And so far, though, they're more oppressive than other armies before. The cycle is following its normal route, right? They fall away from God. They become oppressed. They cry out to God. They send a judge. So far, we've seen the same cycle, but we expect God at this time to raise up a deliverer, right? We've seen it happen in chapters and passages before, and yet we see a change here. Look at verse number seven. It says, And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel. Notice here, God's first response to Israel's cry is not to send a savior or salvation or a deliverer here, but he gives them a sermon. He sends them a a prophet. Before they can appreciate the rescue that is going to come, the people need to understand why they need rescuing. You know, so often when we get into difficult situations, right, don't we just want the delivery we don't want to figure out, hey, why are we being, do we need delivered? What do we need delivered from? And instead of sending the deliverer right away, they send a sermon, this prophet, whose name we do not know, but they need to understand why they need rescuing. And so the prophet comes and helps them to understand why they're in their trouble they're in. He wants them to understand where their idolatry, their sin, where it has led them. And the nature of the sermon, as it shows here, it shows that God is trying to convict these people so that they'll truly be repentant, that they'll truly repent, which suggests that this crying out that we read about wasn't a crying out of repentance. We'll talk about here in a moment. It wasn't a sign of real repentance. And their history, the Israelites' history, as we've just read before, after the deaths of Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, is strong evidence that their sorrow, the Israelites' sorrow as they're being oppressed, is really only skin deep. It's not a heartfelt sorrow. And so God reminds them here of two things when this prophet brings this sermon. He reminds them of, number one, what he has done, and number two, what they have done. And so what has he done? Look at verse number eight. He says, The Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel... I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you and drave them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. And so God says, I've protected you. I've delivered you from so many oppressions already. This is what I have done. And then he says, 
what they have done at the end of verse 10. He says this, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Ye have not obeyed my voice. And so he's delivered them, and God sends this prophet to convict them of their sin before he sends the judge to rescue them from this oppression. Because the people are regretful, but they're not repentant. These people are regretful, but they're not repentant. You know, the Bible makes a very clear distinction between the two. I'll give you a verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says this. Listen carefully. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. Both are characterized by very deep sorrow and, and distress, but they are completely different. See, worldly sorrow, or as we would use the word regret, doesn't produce any real change, but repentance does. And why is that? We'll talk about for a moment regret. Regret is sorrow over the consequences of a sin, but not over the sin itself. If there had been no consequences for the Israelites, there would have been no sorrow whatsoever. There's no sorrow over the sin for what it is in itself, for how it grieves God or, or violates their relationship with him. The focus is all horizontal. It's all worldly and not at all vertical, concerned about how it affects their relationship with God. And so as soon as the consequences go away, the behavior comes back. Israel says, we're so sorry, and, he, they, and God delivers them, and because they are just regretful, as soon as that consequence is gone, what does Israel do? Turns right back to the idols that they worshipped once again. They're regretful, but not repentant. The heart is not there where it needs to be. And so as soon as the consequences go away, the behavior comes back. The heart hasn't become disgusted with the sin itself, and so the sin remains rooted. Now, we know by reading the book of Judges and by reading really the, 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 these first beginning chapters of the Old Testament that the people of Israel are idolaters, right? We look back into Exodus when it talks about how God delivered them from Egypt. What do they do? They build the golden calf. Over and over, Israel falls into idolatry. And God's response to their crying shows that they're regretful for what they've lost. God, we want that relationship back with you. And they want it restored, but they're not repenting of their idolatry. They're not sorry for the idolatry itself. And so God's aim in sending this prophet to them is to move them beyond regret all the way to repentance. And so you say, well, how does this apply to me? I mean, I don't have a golden calf. What can we learn from this? I think a lot of things. I think, first of all, it's important to check what we are sorry about. It's important to check, I think, what we're sorry about. The consequences of sin in our lives or the sin itself? I mean, I really messed up and I wish this consequence didn't happen. Or is it, God, I realize that I've messed up. Not, I'm not sorry for the consequences, though I don't want those, but I hate how it's affected my relationship with you. What are we truly sorry for? The loss of the pleasure an idol offered or the damage to our relationship with God. When your uh, children or grandchildren or maybe brother or sister um, maybe hits you or does something wrong, what are usually they told to say? I'm 
Sorry, exactly. You know, in our house, we try to practice that as well. And sometimes, you know, for the younger kids, they say it and you can tell they're not saying, I'm sorry. You know, like, uh, that sounded very heartfelt. We try to tell them, you know, we say, hey, tell so-and-so you're sorry. But how often, and we try to do it in our house and aren't always perfect on this, but do we tell them to apologize and be sorry and say what they're sorry for? Are they sorry because they got caught? Or are they sorry because of what they actually did. And so there is a real difference. You know, are they sorry for hitting their brother in the head with a plate? Or are they sorry that they just got caught? There's a real difference. And two implications here. I think number one is this. We have to listen to God's word. Here in this passage, it's interesting that the people cried out for some dramatic miracle. God sent a deliverer. God, help us get away from, from the, 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 these Midianites that are oppressing us. They ask for this miracle, and God sends them a sermon, an exposition of the Word of God. You know, there is no getting around a good study of the Word of God. I love how we have on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings our, our small groups, our discipleship groups, each week, reading scriptures, journaling about what we're learning, and then sharing it with each other. There is no way to get around reading and studying the Word of God. Can I encourage you that Christianity is not just a Sunday morning at 10.30 kind of thing? It is a daily walk with Jesus Christ. It is a daily walk getting into His Word, saying, God, show me what you have me to learn. And here in this passage, Israel said, hey, just send us a deliverer. Get us out of this difficult situation. And God said, hey, you're going to listen to my words, and you're going to know them, and you're going to live them out. There's no way to get away from reading and spending time in the Word of God. That's where we learn who we are. That's the means through which God provides spiritual renewal in our lives. If you want to know what God has for you, what God wants you to learn, how God wants you to grow, who he wants you to be, you need to be in the word of God. As much as I love every single person being here on a Sunday morning, one hour a week is not going to cut it. And I speak to myself as well. I cannot just sit here on a Sunday morning or on a Sunday evening and listen to an hour-long sermon. You're like, an hour-long what? Okay, maybe not quite an hour long, all right? And expect to be thriving spiritually, You've got to decide for yourself to have a personal walk with Christ. You cannot, your friend cannot decide for you. Your wife or spouse cannot decide for you. Your brother or sister cannot decide for you. You have to decide yourself. We need to have the word of God in our life. We have to listen to God's word. Also, we need to discern in ourselves the difference between normal lapses in Christian maturity as we fall and fail and struggle and none of us are perfect, right? I think you could look up here and realize, hey, if he's not perfect for sure, none of us are. And so we have to be able to tell the difference, though, between sometimes when we stumble as Christians, and that's part of maturing, right? We try, and then we fail, and we learn, and we try again, and we succeed, and we grow. And there will be failures in our life because we have a sin-cursed body. But the importance of discerning the difference between growing in Christian maturity and getting, if I could put it this way, stuck. A repeated pattern of failure, which is no sign of real progress. Listen, it's one thing to say, hey, I struggle with this, and I fail once in a while, but I'm continuing to grow and to learn. There's a difference between that and I just keep falling in the same spot over and over and over. And we have to learn to discern 
the difference. If you're continually falling into the same spiritual pit and your falls or your fails are not decreasing in numbers or intensity at all, then you may be responding in regret rather than repentance. And so we pick on the Israelites because we say, how many times are you guys going to fall into oppression before you figure it out? And then I look at my own life and say, how many times am I going to fail before I get a clue? Before I realize that I'm just sorry for the consequences sometimes, and I need to be truly repentant. These Israelites are hesitant to repent, but continue to respond in regret each time. In other words, you may be simply, I think, regretful for the troubles of your sin, but unwilling to identify and reject the idol under which the sin is still attractive to you. And I think that's why it's so important for us to have Christian friends that help us to identify those things, to give us a good perspective on our hearts, because we can't do it all by ourselves. The Bible says, iron sharpeneth iron. Listen, a Christian left to themselves will fall over and over. This idea of, oh, I can just stay home and I can do church by myself and I can be a Christian by myself, can I encourage you? It's not true. Listen, a person by themselves can be a Christian just as much as a zebra by itself can be eaten by a lion. He's still a zebra, but it's important for us to have godly surroundings and friends to encourage us to grow, to encourage us when we struggle. That's why the book of Hebrews talks about the gathering of ourselves together. We're not just here so we can take up space and have a country club, you know, make sure to get your coffee in the morning. We're here to help each other grow and encourage you to surround yourself with people that are going to do that as well. Many people, though, who are making progress feel that they're not, and many people who are making progress are in denial about it. And I think that's why we need Christian friends. And so does Israel respond by repenting? They say, hey, God, these Midianites are oppressing us. We've got, we've got no land left. They've taken all, all of our animals. They've taken our crops. This is so bad. Send us a deliverer. And God sends them this prophet. And do they respond by repenting? Look at verse number 11. It says, And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak which was in Ophrah that pertained unto Joash, the Ab- you, Abiezrite. I probably butchered that. That's okay. And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. There is no sign of Israel repenting here at all. Judges 6.11 doesn't tell us of the people's heartfelt repentance, the, the burning down of idols and so on. Instead, it says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down where Gideon was, threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. So we see this judge here, this deliverer that's going to help here, but he's hiding. I think a small detail which pictures the level of fear that the Israelites had here. And so God here in verse number 11 commissions his judge, even though, understand this, the people have not repented. The people of Israel have not repented. They're still regretful over the consequences, but they haven't repented. You know, God doesn't wait for us to repent before he begins to save us, does he? Romans 5.8 says what? It says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not, hey, God, once we had our lives cleaned up, Jesus went to the cross for us. He said, and that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. The grace that God shows when we hesitate to repent is amazing. God doesn't begin to save us when we repent. We repent because he's begun his saving work in us. The work of his son, Jesus Christ, and the internal work of his Holy Spirit. 
And these verses here show us, I think, the wonderful truth that God is both more holy and more merciful than we are. He responds to a cry for help by sending a prophet to tell them about their sin, to explain why they're in the mess they're in. And it seems like a much more severe response than we would give someone because as they beg for mercy, if someone keeps, think about this, if someone were to slip into a river because they're walking by the riverbank. And I remember when I was younger, I have a brother that's five years older than me, and uh, we would go fishing with one of our grandpas down by the Ohio River, just right on the river there. And they've got some steep riverbanks. And I remember one time he, he slipped in and I had to get a large branch to, to pull him out. If he continued to do that over and over, it would be foolish of me not to say, hey, maybe you should back up from the edge of the water so that way you're not falling in over and over and over. It's loving to point out their foolishness for walking by the, by the edge of the water. And God goes here to recruit and prepare this rescuer, Gideon, who we're going to learn about, even though there's no evidence of real repentance. Even though there's no evidence of true sorrow over what they've done and how it affects their relationship with God. And this is a much more gracious response than we would give to someone who continually hurt us and showed no sign of stopping. Maybe you've had someone in your life who's, who's hurt you over and over and over. And how do we respond? How do I respond? Not nearly with as much mercy and grace as God shows here. And so he begins to recruit this deliverer here that's going to help the Israelites. Now, God will never compromise on his holiness, but he will never compromise on his grace either. And yet so often, if we're not careful, we exclusively emphasize one at the expense of the other. Of the other. We would say something like, God would never accept me or them after doing that, or, or God is pure love and accepts everyone no matter what. We sometimes emphasize one or the other, or in our day-to-day -day experience, we constantly run from one to the other. Well, God could never forgive me for doing this, or well, God's going to love me no matter what I do. God never compromises on his holiness or his grace, and the way to hold together and appreciate both God's perfect standards and his endless compassion is to grasp more fully the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ where the two meet so glorious. Where God's holiness and his mercy and grace meet. Where Jesus Christ said, because Romans makes it clear, for all of sin to come surely the glory of God. Because nobody else is holy like God is holy. You can't be in heaven. God cannot change that, right? God says, I am holy, be holy because I'm holy, but because we're not, we don't deserve to go to heaven. And yet he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to show that grace to say, because they can't be holy themselves, I'm going to sacrifice my perfection as I die upon the cross so that they can have my righteousness. Where holiness and grace meet at the cross of Jesus Christ is a beautiful picture of both. And it's under this hesitant re repentance here that we meet our next judge. And so hesitant repentance, we meet Gideon. And Gideon here is mentioned in Judges. And he's also in the, the Hebrews, we call it the Hall of Fame sometimes in chapter 11. And I have to confess, as I think about Gideon, and maybe you've heard the stories about Gideon and, and his army, and we'll talk about these in the next chapters. I, I kind of think of Gideon as um, this big real hero, kind of like you know the, the John Wayne or the Clint Eastwood type, you know, kind of like the go ahead, make my day kind of guy. You know, like Gideon's this manly man, like he's going to take care of these Israelites. But as I began to read about Gideon, 
I was really surprised. And the story of Gideon here, I think, is another one of God's stories where he chooses and uses those people who most people wouldn't even dream of him being used. Grace shine a sign here, a story of God's grace where he chooses to use someone that perhaps we wouldn't pick. And we'll see this a little bit in this message that follows. But I think the main thing to remember here is that Gideon was faithful. And in God's eyes, as we see in Hebrews, that was enough. And so the rest of chapter 6 comprises three parts here. A conversation we'll see that takes place with Gideon between Gideon and this angel of the Lord. Then we'll see this building and destruction of these two altars. And then a conversation between Gideon and God. And that is where we see this second hesitation, which is this, a hesitant trust. A hesitant trust. Look with me here at verse number 11. It says, And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was in Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash the Abedazrite, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Now, this first conversation, we see kind of two different understandings of Israel's problem and Gideon's ability here. In response to the angel's opening assurance where he says, the Lord is with you. Look at verse number 12. He says, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Look at Gideon's response here. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles which our fathers told of us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Now, of course, we as the readers here know what is about to take place. But Gideon, after being told the Lord is with you, says, no, he isn't. His argument here is God clearly isn't with us. I mean, because he's putting us into this Midianite's hands and instead of rescuing us like he did our ancestors, we got this sermon instead. God can't be with us if we're suffering through all of these things. Now, we know that God has put the, the Israelites into the hands of the Midianites. Why? Because they've fallen away from him. Not because he's abandoned them. And he's working in their circumstances to show them the poverty of idolatry and to really bring them back to, as we spoke of, repentance. They're not under oppression because God has abandoned them, but rather because God loves them. Rather, because God wants them to understand that there's consequences for walking away from him, and he wants them to turn back to him. And God's point has already been made in verses 9 and 10. He says, I've not abandoned you, but you've abandoned me. You've forsaken me. You've listened and not obeyed my voice. And so in response to Gideon's suggestion here that they need this Egypt-style rescue, hey, send a, a Moses-type figure for us. God says, you're the salvation that I'm sending. You're my mighty warrior. You're the Moses for this generation of my people. Gideon says, hey, send us a deliverer. And God says, Gideon, you're it. Now, how easy is it sometimes for us to make both of Gideon's mistakes here? First, we tend to see when we have troubles as evidence that God has left us. You ever thought that before? I know I have. You know, oh, I'm going through this. You know, God, why have you let me go through this? Why did you walk away from me? Why aren't you helping me here? We have a tendency to think of our troubles as evidence that God has left us instead of asking how God is working in and through them for our good. 
as Romans 8.28 says. Second, we're often waiting for God to do something to us or for us, or wondering why he doesn't use someone to bring help. We essentially say, Lord, why don't you remove this problem? Isn't that our first response when we come into a problem? God, could you just take care of this problem and get rid of it for me? Instead of saying, Lord, make me the person who can handle this problem. Make me the person who can endure this problem and grow from this problem. And so God tells Gideon that he is the one being sent to, as he says here in verse 14, save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. He says this question, have not I sent thee? And this provokes the second disagreement. So Gideon objects that he is, in verse 15, the least in my family. Look down there at verse number 14. It says, And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. He says here, economically and socially, I'm the poorest member of the weakest clan of this non-prominent Israelite tribe. He says in verse 15, wherewith shall I save Israel? Kind of, he says here, really, are you talking to me? Like, are you sure you're talking to the right person here? And so the angel is already called in verse 12, Gideon, what? A mighty man of valor. And then you see Gideon's response here and think, excuses? Mighty man of valor. Like, I don't see how those two go together. I encourage you that God sees Gideon for the man he will become, not just for the shortfalls he has right now. Listen, God sees you for who you will become in his strength and his might. And if we're not careful, we make excuses. Gideon's the kind of man who hides fearfully here in this wine press to, to thresh his wheat. Now, some people think here that God is mocking Gideon, you know, kind of crouching in this wine press is hardly the actions of a fearless warrior, right? You know, hey, I'm hiding down here and I'm threshing my wheat so nobody sees me. Surely that's not what a, a fearless warrior would do. I'd imagine he would go up on the hilltop, thresh his wheat, and say, bring it on, Midianites. But that's not what Gideon does here at all. And so something, maybe God is mocking him, Others think that Gideon is deliberately being modest. You know, who, me? I I couldn't possibly do that. Or that he just hasn't realized how much potential he has. But I think all of these fail to take seriously either God's power or his word. Listen, if God says that Gideon is a mighty warrior, then he is. If God says it, then it's true. He's, he's to use his own abilities according to verse 14. But Gideon's potential, whether it's realized or not, is not alone sufficient. It needs to be confined or combined with the knowledge that I am sending you. I will be with you, as verse 16 says. Gideon's correct to suggest that he can't save Israel because he can't do it in his own strength, can he? No, he's one person. There's a whole lot of Midianites. God's correct to tell him that he will save Israel using his own strength But knowing that God that has called him to this task is with him in it. And as God's people today, I think we need the same attitude in the areas of service to which God has called us. Hey, listen, I know I can't do it in and of myself, but if you're with me, 
I know it's possible. If you're with me, I know your word is true. If you said this is going to happen, I'm going to trust you. I'm not going to hesitate. I'm going to put my trust fully in you. And it's here that we see Gideon hesitant again. Look at verse number 17. It says, And he said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. Gideon says, well, I need a little more proof, God, that this is exactly what you want me to do. Before I go tearing down these altars, hey, show me some proof that you are who you say you are. Show me that I can trust in exactly what you're saying right now. And what's amazing to me is in spite of Gideon's lack of trust, God shows Gideon grace and he gives him a sign. And then Gideon goes on and destroys the altar to Baal and builds an altar under the Lord. We say, was it right for Gideon to ask for a sign? The answer is, I don't know. I think we can see some hesitance and trust there. Well, God, I need more proof. God, make this happen so I know it's for sure. And you say, well, was that sin? Perhaps, I don't know. But we see, regardless of whether it was right or wrong, God show grace and give him a sign anyways. And so we see a hesitance and trust here, and yet God shows grace. And so we see here, God gave him a sign. Gideon goes on to tear down this altar to Baal, build up this altar to God. We see him, although do it in the middle of the night because of a fear of the Midianites. Yet still, even after this, Gideon is unsure of God's calling and promise. And so turn out a little bit towards verse number 36 here. So we've seen Gideon begin to serve God faithfully, in spite of perhaps a little bit of a lack of trust here. And verse 36 says, And Gideon said unto God, If thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said, Behold, I will put a fleece of wool in the floor, and if the dew be on the fleece only, and it be dry upon all the earth beside, then shall I know that thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said. So although God has already shown him one sign, Gideon here sets out a fleece and asks God to confirm his plans by making it wet on the ground here, or by uh, making dry on the ground and then making this fleece wet. But he doesn't just stop there. So God does as Gideon asks, right? Verse 38 says, And it was so. For he rose up early on the morrow and thrust the fleece together and wringed the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. And so he, he answers his request, and it says, And Gideon said unto God, Let not thine anger be hot against me, and I will speak but this once. Let me prove, I pray thee, but this once with the fleece. Let it now be dry only upon the fleece, and upon all the ground let there be dew. And so God once again even reconfirms by reversing this request, both of which God does here. And as I said, many people have criticized Gideon for this action. And was it wrong or sinful? Why did God respond? I think some others have done something like this before. Perhaps you've said, you know, Lord, if you want me to, to take this job, you know, take care of these different things, line these things up for me. And so we have to be careful, though, when, when Satan, remember, asked Jesus to test God by asking for a sign. Remember Matthew chapter 4, Jesus did what? He rebuked him. Gideon here, I think, is very specifically asking God to show him that he was not one of the forces of nature like other gods were, these gods, this Baal, but were sovereign over those things. Gideon wasn't looking for, for little signs to helping him, help him make decisions. 
he was really seeking to understand the nature of God. And God understood his heart. We have to remember that he didn't have the Bible, did he? He didn't have all of Scripture or many of the, the means of grace that we have now, whether it be the Word of God or, or, or the Lord's Supper or a Christian fellowship. He didn't have many of these things. And so he's specifically addressing the places where his faith was weak and uninformed. And we can't use this, I think, as justification for God. If you want me to, if you want me to make this decision, you know, make it rain. God, God make it sunny. God, God, do this right now. This isn't justification for us saying, God, I want signs for every decision I make now. Gideon wasn't doing that. He was asking for this revelation from God to show him who he really is. What he really says here is, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. God, I believe and trust you, but there are areas where my faith is weak, and so I need your help to strengthen those. And so he is hesitant, yes, but Gideon's request was for help to build up his faith. And God, in his grace, responded not once, but twice. In this time of hesitant trust, God continues to show grace to Gideon. And so when we make the same request, God graciously responds so often by pointing us to the revelation of his word to see his character. And so here we see hesitant repentance. Can I ask you a question? Are there things in your past or present about which you're regretful but not repentant? In my own life, are there decisions that I've made and things that I've done where I'm regretful but not repentant? Uh, can I encourage you to go from regret and move to repentance this morning? He's gracious to give us that time that we need, but he desires for us to not just be regretful and sorrowful over our actions of being, the consequences are being caught, but he wants us to have a heartfelt repentance, a true sorrow to realize that what we've done, what I've done affects my relationship with him. Will you this morning move from regret to repentance? Is there an area of your life where you're crying out for salvation? God, just take this away. Fix this problem I have. But actually, maybe God is prompting you to, to, to listen to a sermon of some sort, to get into his word a little bit more. How does the knowledge that God is acting in grace, even before we turn back to him, motivate you to repent and to listen to him, to realize that God is showing you grace where you're regretful and desires for you to come back to him. Let that be a motivating factor. That hesitant repentance. And we see here hesitant trust. Can I ask you this? What troubles are you facing? Will you see them as problems that need, that need removing? Or will you see them as possible ways for God to take you and to grow you? To take you and to make you into the person that he desires for you to be? To not just say, God, get rid of this, but God, make me the person that can handle this through your strength and through your grace. Are there parts of your life where you need to ask God to point you to his son so that you can trust more fully in his promises? I mentioned I don't like swimming much earlier. And, um, you know, like I said, the water's too cold, there's a lot of work involved. But my kids love swimming. And so a couple years ago, right around when the, the pandemic started, um, we purchased a, a small pool. And it worked out great because I remember 
all the pools were like sold out. Nobody else would get a pool. And I felt like, you know, I was some genius, but we just got lucky. Um, and my kids love swimming. You know, they'll want to go to the water parks and they'll, they'll swim. You know, it could be like 30 degrees outside. I guess it has to be a little bit warmer. And they'll love to go swimming. I mean, I like swimming in like a hot tub, but my kids love swimming. And so we'll set up the pool and I'll be outside. You know, I take care of the pool. I'm like the pool guy, I guess. And they'll sit there and they'll beg for me to go swimming. And there is only one way for me to get into the pool. I'm not the kind of person that like, you know, walk up and kind of, you can't do the little toe dip because then you feel how cold it is and you're like, I'm not getting it at all. Or, or for some of you that get in the pools, you know, there's the stairs perhaps, you're like one step, two step, and you kind of lose your breath with each step you take. I'm not that kind of person to get into a pool. If I'm going to get into the pool, there's only one way. That's the cannonball. Just dive in completely all at once. And I really think that's what each of us, myself included, need to do for the Lord. To stop making excuses of why you can't do something for him. Quit asking for for fire to fall from the sky before you move. When he speaks, listen. Help us today to get away from this hesitant repentance. Not just to be regretful but to truly repent over what we've done and to realize that it affects our relationship with God. These Israelites hesitated to repent. They were sorry for the consequences, and we see how over and over the reason they kept falling into oppression is because they did not repent of their actions. Where is that true in your life and mine? We just continually fall into the same failures over and the same cycle over, and we're just like the Israelites. Here comes another judge. We need another deliverer. We need another deliverer. Help us to be repentant over our faults and our failures. And help us to trust in him. God, if your word says I can do this, help me to trust in you. God, when you guide me to make this action, help me just to jump in all the way. God, help me to surround myself with people that are going to encourage me and challenge me to be all in for the Lord. This hesitant generation suffered because they didn't fully repent, because they didn't fully trust God. May that not be set up us today. Help us to get away from this hesitant repentance. Help us to get away from this hesitant trust that we see in this generation and to live wholly and fully for the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning, Lord.